We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Flying solo in the studio today. Gavin is off today and uh, for the next few weeks, in fact. Uh, but by phone, we've got two excellent guests with us uh, from Taichung. We're joined once again by ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent Donovan Smith. Donovan, thanks for being here. Oh, good to be here. And also by phone today, uh, we're happy to welcome to the show for the very first time uh, Taipei-based contract reporter Ralph Jennings, whose byline pops up in the likes of Forbes, uh, LA Times, Christian Science Monitor, a whole lot of other places. Uh, Ralph, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Today on the show, we're talking politics on two fronts, both Hong Xiaoju's ascension to the KMT chairmanship and the Ma Tsai meeting that took place uh, this Wednesday. Then we'll be moving on to new terror concerns some are raising with warnings that Indonesian nationals living in Taiwan could become radicalized by IS ideology. Uh, we'll be discussing that possibility, and a bit later in the program, we'll be discussing why it is that one group trying to memorialize the trauma experienced by Taiwan's so-called comfort women during World War II are not getting as much support as you might expect. Uh, but first, our top story, and of course, uh, as we all know by now, Taiwan was shocked this week by the gruesome killing of a four-year-old girl this Monday. Uh, uh, so a, a very troubling story, many troubling details about it. Uh, first of all, it occurred in broad daylight, out in the street, uh, out in public. It also happened right in front of the mother of the four-year-old. It's really hard to imagine anything uh, much more horrific uh, than that particular scene. Uh, tragically, there were also two other apparent random attacks perpetrated uh, the next day. Uh, you know, this is only speculation, but I think to a lot of people, it looks like this was probably inspired by uh, Monday's very well-publicized attack. Uh, at this point, Monday's attacker is being held incommunicado, and the investigation and prosecution are ongoing. So uh, I don't really want to dwell on the facts of the case too much at this point and instead uh, focus on our conversation on the public reaction to this event, which uh, has been massive. Uh, of course, whenever one of these uh, random killings comes up in Taiwan's news, uh, closely on its heels comes a, a big public discussion over uh, the death penalty, with uh, the supporters of the death penalty coming out in force to restate their support. That happened this time uh, as well. But uh, Donovan, somewhat interestingly... Uh, we actually heard from the mother uh, of of the slain child this time around, and she's hoping that that won't go too far. Yeah, she very specifically called on the public to leave hatred behind them and urge an, an end to attacks between people with different opinions on capital punishment and criminal justice issues. And she also said she does not support any organization that tries to use the case and her daughter's name for its own agenda. Um, so she's very specifically come out uh, against politicizing this, um, which is interesting. She also did some other interesting things. And I, what I find interesting is that the press and uh, pundits generally jumped onto the mental health issue and the death penalty issue. But there was a huge amount of outpouring of just personal tributes um, at, the, at the crime scene in Nehu. There, were, uh, they, there was a 20-meter-long stretch of just things, you know, flowers and candies and coffee.
cards and dolls and uh, laid out for, uh, you know, in, in honor of the victim, which is a very, I, I, that's how the public, I think, outpoured rather than the press. Right. And, well, I think that that is heartening because uh, at times like this, uh, really the focus should be on supporting the victims uh, more than anything else. Um, But getting back to that press reaction that you were uh, alluding to just a moment ago, um, and one of the things that came up, of course, uh, it was a little weird. This one was a little weird. It came in waves. Um, Drugs was an issue. The the perpetrator of the crime, uh, he has a history of drugs. And so uh, a number of lawmakers came out and were calling for harsher penalties of uh, drug use, uh, known drug users, uh, even calls for caning of uh, drug users, uh, making the connection between these kinds of uh, random killings and drug abuse. Uh, But then another connection that was made was uh, with mental health. Uh, The individual that committed this appears to have a history of mental health issues as well. Um, which led to calls for forced hospitalization of those with mental health issues. Uh, uh, Ralph, uh, what do you take away from that? What I took away was that um, the people here definitely want some kind of solution to back up their outrage over the incident. One of the things you hear every time, of course, is calls for the death penalty, but that's already in place now. It's possible that the, the next government will revise that or suspend it as the previous government did, but it will still be there. So the issue becomes what to do about mental health. And I was surprised that so many people called for institutionalization or hospitalization because it shows that most people perhaps don't understand what a mental illness is. Most of these conditions are are not antisocial or violent. A lot of them are treatable and you can leave the hospital after a while in most cases. So there needs to be a bit more education, and I don't think that this uh, plan for forced institutionalization will go anywhere. This would require a big overhaul of the national health insurance uh, system, and um, it would almost be like forcing patients to stay somewhere that's not their home when they don't want to. Right. And uh, so that's one of the reactions that came out of this. Uh, another person that weighed in following the tragic is- incident was uh, Ko Wenja. And uh, Donovan, you were saying that you were very interested in his reaction. Yeah. I mean, just in general on the, on, on the mental health issue, uh, it's something that, that, that really surprised, surprised me is that there were so many people calling for it, considering the history of under martial law, people would be disappeared basically into the mental health, uh, you know, for they would say they had mental health issues and then abduct them basically. So it's a real, it should be a sensitive issue, and I was surprised nobody really, really picked up on that. Um, but yeah, he said, um, he, he urged the, you know, the, the, the Li Jiangs, the, the neighborhood, the bureau chiefs to create more uh, community events and social activities for people with mental illness. Now, there's several problems with this. Number one is he urged wardens to, quote, drag people out of their homes uh, by holding community events and allowing uh, residents to learn more about one another. And then he he went on to say, if you put these eccentrics, as he labeled them, in a more normal social framework, they will behave more normally. Now, he was essentially trying to say that uh, 
if harmoni- if society is harmonious, their delusions will be of good things, but if others' interactions with them are characterized by discord and a lack of mutual trust, they might have delusions that people want to hurt them, which could prompt preemptive actions. So essentially, he wanted to get the community, the neighborhood wardens, to intervene with people who have mental illnesses. Now, the problem is, is that the local medical privacy laws don't allow, of course, the Li Jungs to, uh, to, spe- to access that information and isolate them and specifically pick them out to pull into social interactions, which would, of course, be a little bit ostracizing. Um, and so that there's a lot of problems sort of on a logistical level, on a moral level, uh, with, with that kind of a call. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think uh, what he's getting at, maybe the specifics aren't entirely practical, but I think what he's getting at is uh, looking at these mental health issues uh, in a way that is not so punitive and looking at it in more of a, you know, let's reintegrate folks that are somewhat disaffected from society and help them feel that they're a part of the broader society. Yeah, but, I, I, you know, specifically picking them out with using your local, you know, your local lead jobs to pick them out and, you know... <laughs> This way is a little is actually probably more counterproductive. You wouldn't want to use a hook, no, uh, Ralph. What were you saying? Yeah. yeah, sorry about that. I found his approach to be quite um, uh, progressive, actually, because as everybody else is saying, let's let's lock them up in hospitals. He's saying, look, they're normal people at the end of the day, and what they really need is some some social outlets. Um, and I did interview a mental health specialist yesterday for a story I did who said that, um, you know, most of these people are not dangerous, um, and if you smile and say hi, they even if they don't respond the same way they appreciate it, then what a lot of them are looking for is just some, some compassion and human connection there. Right. So uh, one of the many issues that Taiwan is going to have to grapple with uh, in the fallout from this tragic incident, uh, of course, there has been a number of uh, similar random attacks over the past several years, uh, three of which since uh, I believe 2011, maybe 2012, have involved children. So uh, really disturbing. But I mean, overall, I think that uh, it's important to be reminded of the fact that in, in general, Taiwan is really one of the safest countries uh, in the world. So uh, while, you know, all of these are worthwhile issues to discuss and take on, uh, we, we, we do need to, in general, uh, be reminded of the fact that the streets are safe here, and uh, we can at least uh, be happy about that. But uh, we are going to move on from that troubling story and uh, on to politics. Uh, and we've got two big stories this week. First up, that little chili pepper did it. Former Deputy Legislative Speaker Hong Shouju is now the current chairperson of the KMT. After winning more than 56% of the vote in the party's by-election last Saturday. Uh, now we discussed the KMT chairperson race last week on the show uh, and why it is that Hong remains something of a controversial candidate. Now, and despite that very high percentage, there was a a, a markedly low turnout for this thing, a a record low turnout of only 41 percent of uh, the party voters. And many are interpreting that as a sign that while, you know, she did win, there's not overwhelming enthusiasm for her. Uh, I want to take this to you, Donovan, first. Uh, What do you read into this victory, both in terms of uh, where the party is at right now and uh, where she might be taking it? Well, I mean, it obviously shows the Huang Fuxing and the and the serious deep blues pretty much own the party, and they're the only ones showing up to vote now. 
uh, because they're the only ones who care <laughs> anymore. So it, it's essentially, but then these are people who are borderline new party. So that's, you know, now on, for her part, um, she, I mean, she's clearly a committed ideologue, but also in a lot of ways, like during the, uh, the, the election, um, she showed, you know, she didn't take money from the party. She, she showed a kind of a fierce integrity, which I think a lot of people appreciate, a lot of people respect, even, even people who don't agree with her. Um, so the question is, is now, first of all, she's, she's, I don't think she's going to tinker with the ideology much, except to probably bring it more deep blue than it has been. Um, but in terms of the structure of the party, uh, attracting in youth, I think she may be very energetic. I don't know how effective she'll be, but she'll be, my suspicion is she's going to, she is going to really put her heart into this. But what it's going to change in terms of the the party's electoral prospects, I, 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 if anything, it'll make it worse. But she may reform the party in ways that do matter along the lines of party assets and uh, the structure of it. Mm-hmm. All right. So Donovan's saying there that uh, maybe going to ameliorate some of her, uh, you know, most controversial policies. We've already seen some signs of this that she's not going to emphasize uh, her cross uh what many would view as pro-unification policies. Uh, that she's not going to emphasize that too much uh, as the leader. Is that what you're seeing uh, as well, Ralph? Do you expect a, a somewhat toned down Hong Shouju or something else? Well, first I saw her appointment as being sort of uh, an, an apology for taking her out of the presidential race, and I also think it's um, a, a tip to the, you know, the uh, the gender divide. Um, we have a female president coming in. I think the KMT believes they need to catch up and do that as well. Um, and I don't really have a sense of what she's going to do as the party chairperson. I think you're right that um, China relations is not going to be a priority for them, at least not on the surface although they'll probably keep on talking to the Chinese somehow in their own, to their own low-key channels, whether they're in office or otherwise. Um, I think that she will be watched also to see how well she can bring people together within the party, the, the older guard, some of the, the younger people who they're trying to cultivate, if she can pull people together and make the party run effectively. Uh, which it hasn't done, obviously, for the last two years, then she probably has a chance of um, running again for president. And, um, you know, they don't really have anybody who's being groomed that way anymore. There's uh, Julie Lud is still out there, but, you know, once he once they exhaust him or he doesn't make it or, you know, even if he does later on, they need to have more people. And uh, if, if she can... We, we can look at Tsai Ing-wen. She ran the party. She brought it together. She was able to smooth over some of the factions, and now look what she's doing. Uh, maybe they want Hong uh, Xiu to do the same thing. Mm. All right, and very quickly before we move on to our next political story, I thought it was pretty interesting that during her, I don't know if you call it an inauguration ceremony for a, a, a chairperson, but during the ceremony where she was confirmed as chairman, uh, she really did spend a lot of time talking about... Uh, her desire to bring the to re-energize the youth within the party to give them outlets for advancement within the party, uh, recruit talent from schools, recruit talent from the grass grassroots level. Uh, so really, an emphasis on youth that we were hearing from her this week. 
Uh, of course, you know, we just heard from Donovan, probably the, the most energetic members of the party are the older members. And that's uh, really uh, a big part of why uh, she did as well as she did. So uh, I want to put this to to both of you, but let's start with Ralph. Uh, I mean, do you see the KMT as being able to uh, reconnect with uh, that part of the demographic? Eventually they will. Uh, you know, the KMT has been a very flexible party over its 100 years of existence. You can see uh, they've you know, gone from one place to another and, you know, different kinds of governments over their, their their decades. So they will probably be able to do that at some point. Uh, it's going to take them a while. As you said, the old guard is much more active. Uh, they do have a couple of younger people who are running their media services and publicity, which I'm, you know, something that I run into as a reporter. I don't know to what extent they are able to recruit younger people to do other kinds of work. Um, I, they, they will be able to do that perhaps if they... They, they need to learn more about um, social media, um, you know, how to reach out to people, which the, um, the DPP has done very well at. They wouldn't hurt to have some, you know, some events, some rap concerts, some performances, the kinds of things that people do and to shed their image as being an old institutional party. Uh, that as well as, you know, not, um, you know, de-emphasizing some of the things that uh, youth don't care about or they don't like, things like um, getting closer to mainland China. Um, you know, this, this, obviously they know by now what the popular issues are and what they're not, so once they can get away from the stuff that isn't popular and reformat their image, I believe they can slowly pick up some younger people. Hmm. And uh, Donovan, uh, pick up on that. I mean, uh, to be honest, just the thought of a KMT rap party uh, it seems a little incredible. And that, I guess that just speaks to uh, the challenge that they're confronting. I, I Honestly, I don't think they're going to pick up any, any youth at all. Um, I mean, uh, Hong Shouzhou, when she, you know, during the curriculum protest, for example, uh, you know, I wrote a whole piece on, she she came out and said, you know, they just, you know, the kids don't get it. it, it, it was, it's a very dismissive way of putting it. And in spite of her education background, I really don't think that she listens to them at all. Uh, and that came, really came out during the curriculum thing. Her ideology is first and foremost, and it's their job to understand her uh, and for her to educate them than it is for her to listen to what they actually have to say. So I don't think she's going to make any headway at all uh, with, with, with youth, uh, period. I, I think that she, because she's so fiercely ideological, she may pick up some pro-unification youth, but she's pretty much already got them. So I, don't, I, I really don't think she's going to get much else. I don't think she has really anything ideologically to offer to them. Structurally, with the party organization, she might help some younger members uh, get, you know, might, might be able to get a little bit more ahead, but I don't see that, that translating into young voter support. All right. Well, we're going to leave that story on a little bit of a disagreement there and uh, move to our next political news of the week. Uh, and that would be President Ma Ying-jeou and President-elect Tsai Ing-wen's, well, their little sit-down chat uh, at the Taipei Guest House that uh, happened this Wednesday. 
It was actually their first such meeting since Tsai won the January presidential election. And it all kicked off with uh, public comments and a question and answer session Wednesday morning. Uh, That was followed by the meeting proper, which was uh, pretty long at 75 minutes, closed-door talks. uh, But we did get some insights into what was going on uh, when their spokespeople, various spokespeople, came out and told us about what was happening in there. And uh, they wrapped it all up with one of those minute-long handshakes that we've been seeing a lot of recently. And, uh, well, let's just pick up on that handshake quite an amicable thing, uh, at least by appearance. Uh, is there any significance to the overall tone of amicability there, Donovan? Well, I mean, I mean, as, as Ty emphasized, it's, it's about democracy and, and transition. And she made three points on that. But yeah, essentially, they, they were emphasizing, they were both emphasizing that this is, this is a democratic handover. And as we should hope it would be, I mean, I'm sure we should be glad about that. Uh, Ralph, I mean, does this give us any kind of indication that uh, we're going to see more nods to uh, bipartisan cooperation to, you know, less strife than we've been seeing over the past eight years? Or or is this really just a a pro forma event and we can't really read too much into it? It's definitely the latter. It certainly is pro forma. Um, It's possible that uh, Tsai Ing-wen will be will try to bridge the parties to some extent as long as her her bottom line, her, her agenda doesn't get compromised. Um, she has, as I mentioned earlier, done pretty well at bridging factions within her own party, so she may be able to, to, to cross a little bit. Uh, I don't know how willing the KMT is to, to go there and, and engage her. and I don't know how far she'll go either. Um, so it, it's possible she has some, you know, some of the personality and the discipline to, to get that done. Uh, however, I don't think that the the meeting itself with Ma revealed anything about either Tsai's platform on any particular issue or her, you know, how exactly she would work with um, the uh, KMT minority in the legislature or whatever other interests they may have. Mm. Now, as as an outside observer, maybe I'm just not close enough to this, but uh, when when Ma speaks to Tsai, it almost comes off as a scolding tone, like he always talks about the policies that he's done, and he hopes the incoming administration will, you know, continue those policies, build on those policies. I, it almost seems lecturing. Am I am I reading too much into that, Ralph? Do you think, or or or, or would other people in Taiwan see that as well? Um, I think you're you're onto something there. Uh, Ma Ying-jeou doesn't lecture only uh, Tsai Ing-wen. He tends to lecture anybody who he doesn't think is on board with his uh, his programs and his policies and achievements. And he's on a he's on a real bender now to prove his achievements before he leaves office. Uh, he he's not uh, fading out as 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 um, quietly and politely as as uh, the opposition might have hoped. And I think. For whatever reason, we'll, we'll find out what this is after he actually leaves and goes on to do something else. But he is trying to establish a, a legacy for himself, and he wants people very badly to remember what he did and um, not discredit it, so that you know he can eventually go on and, and leverage all these achievements to do something else. Right. Uh, yeah, and we can probably expect to. Well, he's still got, what is it, a month and a half, two months? How far are we from May 20th? Uh, yeah, a month and a half to continue that. So we should certainly expect just a little bit more of that uh, in the coming days. 
But that just about does it for the first half of the show. We're going to have to wrap up our political segment there. Uh, Getting into the second half, I think our audience may notice two glaring omissions in our coverage this week. Uh, Those, of course, being the grounded tanker off of Taiwan's north coast that continues to leak a troublingly large amount of oil into the water. Uh, Reports are that uh, it may, that slick of oil may have even reached Geelong, uh, but headline that I read said that it hasn't tainted the fish that are being fished, so uh, that's kind of heartening. We can only hope for the best there. The other thing that we're admitting is the controversy surrounding embattled academia Seneca head Wang Shihui. Uh, he is embattled because he endorsed a drug, a cancer drug, then ended up not working too well. The drug did not do very well in the preliminary tests. And uh, by the way, his ham- family has a pretty substantial investment in the company making the drug. Uh, so lots of controversy there. He is right now in America. And lawmakers uh, yesterday made a resolution calling on him to return to Taiwan to do a bit of splaining on the whole issue. So that's been something that's been uh, plastered all over the English and Chinese dailies for the last couple of days. Uh, But unfortunately, we can't cover everything this week, have a lot of other stories to get to. So we are going to be moving to a break now. When we return, we will be discussing... The warnings this week about what some fear is a growing terrorist threat in Taiwan and other East Asian countries. And we'll be taking a closer look at the work of one group to highlight a very painful historical wrong in Taiwan. All that and more when we return. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Donovan Smith and Ralph Jennings. Jumping back into things, an overabundance of caution or an emerging security threat? Lawmakers this week are raising the alarm over runaway Indonesian workers, following warnings by a senior Indonesian official that some migrant workers could be recruited by the Islamic State. Uh, Let's back up on those warnings uh, just for a second. Uh, The official that is raising the alarm bells is the head of the Indonesia's Bureau for the Placement and Protection of Foreign Workers. He's been cited as saying that uh, he is aware of two Indonesian workers in South Korea that have joined IS. So uh, that's where that alarm is coming from. Uh, And he's also saying that there are reports of Indonesian nationals in Taiwan wearing IS badges. So, you know, somewhat tenuous stuff, not really directly linked to any actual uh, attacks or, uh, you know, suicide bombings or anything like that. Just, you know, a bit of a connection that he's drawing there. Meanwhile, also came up this week, turns out there's uh, no law prohibiting Taiwanese nationals from joining IS. Uh, Surprisingly enough, I would have expected that there is. There is not. The National Security Bureau says uh, this is a problem, uh, and they are pledging to remedy it. So uh, terrorism, national security coming up in the news in a couple of places uh, this week. But, uh, I mean, I I think uh, a, a lot of us You know, when we hear about this kind of stuff, we may not feel overly alarmed by it. And that is because uh, Taiwan is obviously a fairly low priority for these terrorist organizations. Uh, I mean, is that your takeaway from this as well, Ralph? Yes, except for the tiny flap last year when IS listed Taiwan as one of its possible target states. I have no indication that IS cares about this region. Um, it doesn't seem to be really fitting with their 
their overall political agenda. Uh, whether the Indonesians here are espousing IS or doing something to help them, I suppose it's possible, but I don't know why the ones here would be particularly involved in com compared to the Indonesian diaspora everywhere else. Right. Well, as some folks that are buying into this line of reasoning were saying that uh, the Indonesians in countries like Saudi Arabia or China have less access to uh, sensitive comment, radicalizing content, whereas in countries like South Korea or Taiwan, uh, where there's more free flows of information, uh, it's easier for them to get a hold of this content, uh, and therefore uh, countries like Taiwan would be more prone to seeing this kind of radicalization occur. Uh, but uh, I, I'm based on the tone so far, I'm, it's sounding like you, you might not take that too seriously. My impression is that the Indonesians here are... are uh more than happy to be here because they can find jobs that pay them more than the, what they would make in in Indonesia somewhere. And if they were to use their positions here to take up an unpopular political cause, they would um, lose their jobs and their rights to live in Taiwan. And most of the people here are are here for economic reasons rather than political reasons. Although. I do understand the theory about the, the, the free flow of information. Uh, Taiwan is quite open that way, and it doesn't have a history of, of um, safeguards against terrorism. So I suppose it's a, it's a nuclear channel that they could use. Mm. Uh, and uh, Donovan, is this a story that you've been following this week? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a couple of things that, that kind of jumped out at me. Uh, the National Security Bureau Deputy Director said there's a total of 35 people labeled as foreign terrorists or on the terrorism blacklist attempted to enter or make transit stops in Taiwan last year, and the NSB had full knowledge of who the suspected terrorists planned to meet once they entered Taiwan. Now, I, I mean, essentially, I, I think, uh, you know, on a, on a macro level, I, can, I, I agree exactly with what, what, what Ralph was saying there. I, I think that the vast majority of all the all the Indonesians here are, you know, they're here to, to work and, and they're, they're, you know, they're perfectly safe. Taiwan is not a particularly high-priority target. It's not, uh, Taiwan is not a country that's meddled in the Middle East much. There's, uh, you know, a million and one reasons why Taiwan shouldn't be a, a, a major target. Um, except for one thing that does give me a little bit of pause is as we saw obviously with the the beheading of the uh you know of the the young girl is that you take a large population of people in this case in Taiwan there's a quarter of a million there's 230,000 uh, Indonesian migrant workers is it possible that one could be radicalized and are there a lot of soft targets in Taiwan so i think that there's a le legitimate cause for for uh that there's let, let's put it this way i don't think we should be worried i because I, I completely agree with ralph i don't think that there are but there is that possibility of that one person who just goes a little nuts uh, out of a population of a quarter million that that it does exist as a possibility all right well uh we're going to wrap that story up there i mean uh interesting that uh, when the lawmakers were talking about this um uh, what they were mostly focusing on was this uh fact that there are about 22,000 uh missing indonesian workers that have you know run off the job 
that they you know had a visa in Taiwan to work at uh, for uh, you know whatever reason maybe they found higher paying undocumented job elsewhere um, and so that was kind of the concern that they were focused on um, but uh, I, I kind of have a feeling that this is going to be a story we're not going to be hearing about too much uh, in a week or two. Uh, or at least I, I certainly hope so, um, because uh, this is a group that, uh, you know, does face certain challenges here in Taiwan, and we wouldn't want to add to that. But moving on now to our final story for the broadcast portion, uh, and we're going to be revisiting a topic uh, that we've discussed a number of times on the program, that being the issue of comfort women. Uh, and when we use that word comfort women, we are referring to uh, the 2000 women uh, well, uh, t- 2,000 in Taiwan, uh, significantly more in other parts of Asia, but uh, the 2,000 women in Taiwan that were kidnapped and forced into sexual servitude by Japanese forces uh, during World War II. Uh, and one big question that's always been kind of hanging over this issue is uh, why it is that it's not something that draws more public outrage here in Taiwan uh, as it does in other countries now, uh, the reason that we're speaking about this uh, today, uh, the news angle here, is that, Ralph, uh, you recently did some reporting on this topic. Uh, you spoke to the Taiwan Women's Rescue Foundation, which have been working to open up a museum kind of memorializing the uh, experiences and the trauma faced by uh, these women. Um, and uh, according to your reporting, uh, while the museum did manage to ha- have a soft opening earlier this month, uh, they did not manage to raise the funds that they were expecting, uh, actually only uh, raising a fraction of what they were hoping for. Uh, and so I- in a lot of ways, this really highlights uh, that conundrum uh, that we were talking about there. Yeah, uh, I think there are several reasons. Uh, one, as you just mentioned, the number of comfort women, as we say, uh, here in Taiwan is only 2,000, and um, it's a small number compared to South Korea. And that population doesn't get much of a mention in the school textbooks. So even if you were a curious high school student, wanted to know your history, there wouldn't really be much you could get. <clears throat> so that's one thing. And then the other thing is um, when Japan colonized Taiwan, of course, colonization went on for 50 years. and. A lot of that, the middle years especially, were relatively peaceful. Of course, Taiwanese didn't have the same you know, legal rights and the same status as the Japanese, but they were able to get on, and um, a lot of the older Taiwanese you talk to comment favorably on uh, how the Japanese ran things, so that the, the infrastructure they left behind, some of their um, you know, agricultural practices, uh, railways, things like that. So that's one thing. There's not that much bitterness. Um, because the colonization was reasonably stable period, and then um, bringing up coming up to uh, you know today's Taiwan, people just love Japan here, and you know it doesn't. Oh, you, you take a walk around the block and you see Japanese food and Japanese cartoon icons, and there's a little bit of Japan almost everywhere you go, um, and um, I think that a lot of Taiwanese people look up to Japan as sort of a, almost like a big brother figure in Asia. And the final reason would be that, um, you know, to get, to identify too closely with the comfort women or to, you know, to get really angry toward Japan about whether, you know, whether they've adequately compensated and apologized, that would be seen as being pro-China because China's been really going after Japan 
uh, for compensation over a number of World War II issues. So, you know, as we discussed earlier in the last segment, most, well, I don't know if most, but a lot of younger people don't want to get any closer to China than they already are. All right, and let's just circle on back. Uh, tell us about uh, the specifics of this museum. Yeah, I uh, had a chance to go look at the museum, although it hasn't um, been fully stocked with with um, basically documents, photos, and videos, and the other things that will eventually be there. Um, but what they want to do is is bring attention to this issue before the last three of these 2,000 women die, to put it real bluntly. One of them is 92, and the other two are 87, or maybe it's the other way around. One's 87, the other two are 92, something like that. Anyway, they're they're in, you know, they're not going to be here forever, so they want to make sure that the, their history is preserved and that people can find out about it. Um, and as, as the... Uh, the head of the foundation said they really want this museum to get the message out of don't hate Japan, but just remember this stuff and um, try in the future to re- you know respect women, uh, don't use violence. So these are the causes that the foundation has been pushing for a long time anyway. So it's consistent with their mission, their mission as an organization. And I think they were surprised by the lack of funding that they've been able to, to pick up so far. They, they're giving themselves another half a year or so to get the money they need for the uh, initial opening costs and the first year's operation. Um, so it's uh, they're still working on it. Um, but the, the, the director of the foundation did mention that this political alignment, the, the favoritism, the favor toward Japan and the opposition to China had hurt uh, her... Her, uh, her fundraising events and her fundraising success. Right, and as it stands now, uh, they had a soft opening, I believe, earlier this month, uh, but they've only managed to raise, I think uh, in your article it said something like a tenth of uh, the money that they would need to keep it open? Well, they had the inauguration was March 8th, I believe, and then they were open, yeah, in a very soft manner for a couple of weeks, uh, basically just showing a few pieces in the lobby of what will be eventually be the full museum. And, um, yeah, they weren't able to get that much. They, they're using social media and some other ways to do this. So, uh, yeah, and yes, you're right. They've only gotten 10% of the total uh, opening cost plus first year's operations. Now, my sense is a little bit of what's going on here. We've had uh, Che Ting Ye of Ketagal and Media come on the show and talk about this issue before. Uh, and when he discussed this issue, he pointed out that uh, wrapped up in all of this is some of the old curriculums that uh, Taiwanese students were brought up with uh, maybe in the 80s and the 90s, which did really emphasize uh, the comfort women issue. And he was kind of saying that, you know, that's kind of seen as a KMT talking point. The fact that that was really emphasized was seen as a KMT talking point. And now anybody who harps on about it, uh, like you said, Ralph, are uh, either seen as pro-China or it's just got that kind of connotation of uh, KMT, that uh, connection to the KMT that some people find a little distasteful. Uh, do, do you see uh, the Taipei Women's Rescue Foundation or, and other groups that want to highlight this issue, that want to bring it to the fore, do you see them taking on uh, that I- identity issue really directly or, 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 or trying to get beyond that? And uh, do you think that they'll be able to get beyond that? I'm not sure if they're going to do that. My 
I think they could, and, and what they're going to try to do is to just de-emphasize politics. As you say, there's sort of a, this bad connotation or this distaste for an old KMT issue that most people don't respect or they don't particularly understand. Um, and I think what they'll do is is appeal to donors' sense of of knowing Taiwan history for what it is, to be to be sympathetic to the women who are who are still alive, the ones that have sought compensation but not gotten it, um, and to to understand that this is this is part of this is part of Taiwan. Um, I think we, women's rights are, are is, is a fairly strong, uh, you know, well supported uh, cause in Taiwan. So if the foundation can market the museum in that way they will stand a pretty good chance. And I, I don't believe that the foundation director is a particularly, you know, politically aligned person. I could be wrong about that, but she didn't come off as somebody who was out to get Japan or, or you know, trying to be on China's side either. Right, and the director that you're talking about there is uh, Kang Shu Hua. Uh, I've actually had a chance to speak with her uh, myself, and uh, one of the issues that they work on is uh, gaining compensation, gaining some kind of a response from uh, Japan as well. Is that right? Yeah, I, I know that the the, found, the foundation had helped some of the uh, the, the earlier surviving women to uh, uh, file their lawsuits in Tokyo for compensation, which they they didn't they weren't able to do that. They I believe they tried for something like 15 years. They didn't get it. Um, but uh, Ms. Kong did say during the interview that she, this, this is not about hatred for Japan. She's very explicit about that. Um, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't have a, a, an issue with, you know, today's 2016 government of Tokyo or any of the people there. And I think she wants to, you know, make, make that a strong point going forward. All right, and folks out there can find all of that reporting in the Wednesday edition of the L.A. Times. Uh, But that is going to be it for our broadcast show today. Uh, We are going to move on now quickly to our uh, final story. This is our podcast bonus story that we always stick in there, something on the uh, lighter end of things. This one honestly uh, is not exactly light, though. It's taking on issues of family, uh, separated family over many, many years and generations uh, and it's uh, kind of unfolding all in Taichung. And since it's in Taichung, the man on the beat is, of course, Donovan Smith. So, uh, Donovan, you actually know some of the people involved in this drama. Tell us about it. Well, yeah. What happened is a uh, young woman reached out to, uh, not, not so young, I suppose, uh, reached out to, uh, to Boston Paul Davies of the Refuge Community. Um, to try and find information on now her father she's looking actually for um, her half brother and son of her father who is uh, stationed here at the uh, at the Qingchenguang, uh, Air, uh sorry the CCK Air Air Force Base here during the Vietnam War he was uh, stationed here in 1966. And in 1967, he fell in love with a woman that he calls Kiko. <clears throat> now, it's guessed that her name is, a pro- is roughly G-meaning, uh, and she would be about 70 or 71 years old now. Now, he fell in love with her, and he tried. And then when he got reassigned in 1967, he tried to uh, have her brought along, 
but the U.S. Air Force, the red tape, the governments, and the political situation at the time, it wasn't able to happen, and so she was left behind. Now, they exchanged some correspondence through letters, and Kiko let him know that he had a son. Now, he's getting on, and he may pass away sometime soon, so he wanted to touch base with his long-lost love and son, but his mother, back in the day, uh, destroyed all the letters, leaving him no way to get in touch with her. So his daughter is using social media and reached out to Paul, uh, and now he... Uh, along with uh, the the guy who did the I Love Taiwan video, uh, Sean Benson, the two of them uh, set up a Facebook uh, group. They've gone out and actually interviewed people to see if they could find the person. And what they're looking for is a mixed African-American Taiwanese roughly around 48, 49 years old. And so they've actually gone out, interviewed people, but they still haven't found the person they're looking for. So if you know anybody who fits the description around that age, mixed African-American Taiwanese, 48, 49 years old, uh, go online and uh, look, look for these Facebook groups. This one group, I should say. This is a this is a story of high drama. It sounds like. I mean, do we know anything about why uh, this uh, gentleman's mother, uh, Mr. Woods, why did, why she burnt that correspondence? Do we know anything about that? Um, it's 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 suggested that to, that she wanted her son to move on with his life. Now, I don't know how accurate that is, but that seems to be sort of the implication here. Now, remember, we're, we're getting the story from one side, and, you know, it's coming through, coming through filters here. So, but that seems to be what happened, yeah. Ralph, do you have any uh, investigative reporting experience, any skills to bring to bear on this case? I'm just sitting here learning from what you're saying. This is a new <laughs> case for me. Do you know any, I mean, it's such a small expat community over here. Do, do any of those names ring bells for you? No, they don't. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, any folks listening out there, that is the case to be watching. Scour your Facebook groups, scour your friends groups, and uh, maybe we can crack this one together. Who knows? That would be fantastic. Uh, Donovan, are you, are, are you uh, sleuth? Are you Nancy drawing this as well? or are, What's your involvement in all this? Well, I'm just helping publicize it. Uh, you know, I put it up on the Taiwan News in English and uh, the Compass. Uh, on the, basically, I'm helping with uh, social media, but the, the actual physical sleuthing they're doing in person. All right. Well, uh, that's Paul and Sean. All right. Well, we uh, wish them all good luck, and uh, hopefully they can uh, find what they're looking for. We're going to round out the show on that segment there, though. Uh, that is it for today. Please do join us again next time, Time on This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. Uh, and we've also uh, just started posting to our blog as well, so you should be able to find it there uh, later this afternoon. Uh, quick question. We uh, are back at our usual 8.30 p.m. time slot uh, I've been asking for the last couple of weeks whether folks out there uh, would be okay if we moved to the 10 o'clock time slot, uh, because at 10 o'clock we'd have a little bit more time for the program, could spread it out a bit. Uh, all the responses that I've gotten so far have said, yeah, move it to 10, use the extra time. Uh, so, so far nobody has said, no, 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 we prefer 8.30, we don't want it that late. Uh, if you disagree, if you have an, uh, an opinion about this, uh, let me know, because as it stands right now, it looks like we're going to move it to 10. Uh, if you do want to let me know, shoot me an email. Uh, you can reach me at keith at icrt.com.tw. 
Uh, once again, that's Keith at icrt.com.tw. Let me know if you got an opinion. That is it. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Donovan Smith. Thank you, Donovan. And thank you. And uh, also joining us by phone for the first time, Ralph Jennings. Ralph, quick question. Is, uh, is that one of your kids that we're hearing in the background there? I was afraid you might ask that. Yeah, she's quite a ways in the background, and um, she wasn't intending to be a guest on your show, but I guess we could welcome her, too. Oh, all right. Well, uh, I, I guess I'm going to have to thank both of you for being on the show, then. Uh, thank uh, you, Ralph Jennings, and thanks to your daughter for being here. Yeah, she she takes cookies as payment, by the way. <laughs> uh, that might be a little expensive. Uh, we're a community radio station, but uh, we'll do our best. All right, and thank all of you for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.